From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. Very glad that you could join us for Open Line Thursday here on EWTN, the Global Catholic Network, uh, Easter Thursday to be specific about it. Jack Williams away today, Tom Price here along with America's favorite Dominican, Father Brian Milady. How are you today, Padre? Just fine, thank you. And you are back at home. Yes, for one week. <laughs> so the missions continue, right? The missions continue. We have two after Easter. Very South good. Carolina, yeah. Very uh-huh. good. Hope that uh, goes well for you. Let me give you the phone numbers, 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Father Brian, 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial the U.S. country code and then 205-271-2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000. Wait for our response and then text us your first name and your brief question. Message and data rates may apply. So today, Father, we're going to talk about the necessity of the resurrection, right? Right. The, of course, Easter was set Sunday, and it's the most major feast of the church's year. It's the night on which heaven is reconciled to earth and wedded to earth, actually, and man is reconciled with God, as the exultant says. Easter is an interesting feast because the whole idea of the resurrection is something that we, in a sense, find very foreign to us. We have never seen a risen body. Now, of course, people in the Acts of the Apostles witnessed it, that all the readings from the Acts of the Apostles recently are about the fact that, you know, he, he appeared to Peter and John and Mary Magdalene and the disciples on the road to Emmaus and those kinds of things. But when you consider this fact, it's many people think that the resurrection, in a way, is something that we should find absurd almost. Now, that's not true. And the reason is because even philosophers by reason, knew that man was a composition of body and spirit. Mm -hmm. And I believe that Plato and Aristotle knew that the soul was immortal, even though Aristotle equivocates about this. In some places he says the soul is immortal because of the act of intelligence. And in other places he seems to suggest it might be mortal. Now why is that? The reason is because our minds, our intellect, our spirits have this dynamism that begins with wonder at the causes of the world. Uh, And you can see this even in children. Uh, I remember we had a a student who got ordained from the seminary. He was an older vocation. 
And I really don't know why he wanted to be a priest. He used to sleep through all of our classes. <laughs> and, you know, you'd think of a person who's going to sleep through a class that at least have the courtesy to sit in the back. Yeah. He used to sit right in the front row. Well, anyway, he went and got ordained, and because they desperately needed pastors in the diocese he was in, he was made a pastor. So he came back to the seminary, and he said, well, in the year I've been a pastor, no one has asked me any theological questions, thus suggesting that studying theology is worthless. Well, we had a very astute Capuchin Franciscan who was the academic dean that year, and he leaned over and whispered in my ear during this talk, well, evidently, in this year that he has been a priest, there's one group of people he's never talked to in his parish, and that's the children. <laughs> because they ask nothing but theological questions. Yeah, that's true. And this is because of the dynamism of the mind mm -hmm. to know why the world is the way it is, which begins with our first act of knowledge, really. Sure. Now, Aristotle is clear that this can only be stilled in direct knowledge of the first cause, which means God without medium. Plato had a similar intuition because, remember, he had this ideal world of the spirit. But what he, when he did that, he couldn't figure out what to do with the body. So he maintained that the body was evil. It was like a prison in which we lived. Aristotle was too good a scientist to believe that. He said, no, the body is just as important as the soul. If the soul is immortal, the body should be immortal. But in fact, he was also a good scientist and knew that there were no immortal, immortal bodies no. in the world. Everybody died. Sure. So this is a conundrum. It's like a box canyon into which reason leads us, which philosophy and reason cannot solve. It's one of those questions where faith is necessary. So when Jesus rises from the dead... And Mary Magdalene, of course, experiences the empty tomb, and then she, as the apostle of the apostles, evangelizes the apostles. And they come and they all believe. Like a ring to a finger, the solution to the problem of man is given to us, that our body is not meant to die. In fact, it does, but it's not meant to. It's because of original sin that we experience this kind of death. And the resurrection of the dead, risen man, is man as he ought to be. It's not some extra icing added onto the cake. When Jesus appears in the upper room and says, peace be with you, passing through the walls, despite the fact that doors are locked, and yet having a real body, a fleshly body, uh -huh. he proves it by the fact that the marks of the wounds are still in it. When Jesus does that, that's like the final solution to why we're in the world. And if when Pontius Pilate pointed to him and said, Behold, man, crowned with thorns, this is what we do as a result of original sin. Jesus now says, I am the resurrection and the life. Behold, man, this is what you were created to be. So in the resurrection of the dead, first of all, reason teaches us that we can't be happy with things in this world in the final analysis. It also teaches us our soul is immortal. It also teaches us that our body and our soul is one. And it also teaches us that our body should live forever. Mm -hmm. But in fact, there's no means. 
So that's why we need a supernatural help to do this, a, a special miracle, a special grace. And this is supplied by the fact that Jesus completes our nature by his own resurrection of the dead in which we shall participate at the end of time. So we see in the risen Lord what the real humanism is, what real Christian anthropology is. And that's why the, one of the readings, you know, from Colossians for the Easter Sunday Mass is, you who've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, not the things of earth. Yes. Because you've died. Mm -hmm. You've died to self and you've died to the fact that anything material can satisfy you. And now you need to adopt and be transformed by the risen Lord to experience a risen perspective toward the world, which is God's perspective, and the perspective of faith, but of faith preparing us for heaven when both our bodies and our souls at the end of time will enjoy the vision of God. Yes, indeed. A few words there on uh, the necessity of the resurrection for Father uh, Brian Milady here on EWTN. We're going to go to the phones in just a moment. Uh, a, a quick question here. Father, this is uh, from uh, Lulu on YouTube who says, A lady I know is angry at God because she can't have babies. She asked me, why? What should I tell her? Well, it's a material thing. And matter isn't um, always perfect. In fact, matter occasionally fails. Uh -huh. You may as well ask yourself why you die. Well, you die because your matter, material body left to itself tends to decay. In this case, there are some people who uh, nature has failed, in a sense, mm -hmm. and their nature is uh, uh, well, somewhat, we talk about wounded nature in our soul, but you could say, in a way, nature is wounded in your body so that you're unable to conceive. But you have all, perhaps all the organs of conception but they're just not working as they should work. So that's because of the way matter is. Okay. Matter is, matter is not perfect. Yeah, uh, understood. No. Lulu, thank you so much uh, for your question on behalf of your friend, and I uh, hope that is helpful for her. Thanks for watching us uh, this afternoon on YouTube. It is Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady. In a moment, we're going to get to the phones. We've got wide open phone lines right now at 833 288-EWTN. If you have a question for Father Brian, 833-288-3986. If you wish, uh, shoot us an email at um, openline at EWTN.com. Back in just a moment, lots more Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady here on EWTN. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Glad you're with us for Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady here on EWTN. Uh, calls are coming in right now, getting those screened as quickly as possible. But we do have a line available for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. We'll kick it off in a moment here with Anna in Miami, Florida, 
First of all, let me tell you about something that you can really depend on, and that is Catholic News Agency, CNA. You can rely on CNA to cover the mission and activities of the Catholic Church, including social, political, moral, and cultural issues from a perspective of faith. For the latest Catholic news, news you can rely on, visit catholicnewsagency.com. It's an online service from EWTN News. And by the way, you can now get timely news updates directly to your email inbox. Just go to EWTN.com, click on the word subscribe. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin with Anna, a first-time caller in Miami, listening on Sirius XM, Channel 130. Hello, Anna, what's on your mind today? Hi, Father. God bless you. Happy Easter. Thank you. Um, I'm calling because, thank you, I um a priest told me in confession that I shouldn't be have to be so worried about everyone else's salvation, including my mom's, but that I should that her salvation's not my problem. I should just worry about me. Um, but I'm a little perplexed by that because uh, mom doesn't go to mass like at all. Um, she's been worshiping false gods. Superstition is her game. So everything that we uh, that we go that goes against the teachings of the Catholic Church when it comes to those things, she engages in, and I'm trying my hardest to talk her out of it, explain these things to her nicely, educate her, and I and I don't want her. I want her to go to heaven. I don't want her to spend a long time in purgatory for doing the wrong things here on earth. So he said, "Nope, you need to worry about yourself." Okay, is that in the uh, is that in the context of the confessional or just in general? Well, when I was in the um, conf- I was in a confession, um, and we talked about things uh, that that she's done. He's like, "But why are you so worried about her?" I said, "Because she's my mama." I said, "Worry about yes." Yourself. No. Okay. Yes, I uh, I would say that it's fine to worry about your parents' salvation. Uh, or your siblings, your family. Many of us have families that have fallen away from the church. And it's it's a concern for us. But we also have to not distract ourselves from our own growth in charity by ch- you know trying to change something that we can't really change. Uh, there's only one person you could change, and that is yourself. And I wasn't in the confession but perhaps the priest thought you were becoming too preoccupied with these other things that you can't really change uh, as such. I mean, God can, yes, it's true, and we pray for it and we work for it, but you weren't becoming preoccupied enough with your own salvation. So that's the, what the answer I would give. Uh, actually, uh, in my own family, I have some difficulties with that, and I just offer my life Hopefully that my siblings will return to the practice of their religion. But once I've done that, then I move on. Yeah, I don't allow it to dominate my life totally. Mm-hmm. So I would imagine that's what the priest meant by that, although I wasn't there, so I really don't know. Anna, thank you so much for your call. Hope that's helpful for you. That opens up a line for you right now at 833 833- 288-EWTN. If you have a question for Father Brian Milady, 
888-288-3986. We are live for you on this Easter Thursday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. Abby in Oklahoma watching us today, Father, on YouTube. Abby says, could Father please speak to the history of the process of electing the Pope? My Protestant husband is very leery of the process, saying it's just a committee of men. What say you, Father? The process of electing the Pope is something that's, of course, in the early church shrouded sort of in in a kind of mystery. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, after all, uh, Peter only went to Rome when he was martyred. And how they exactly chose the next successor, I don't really know. I don't remember. I'd have to do some research on it. But certainly around the, in the early church, eventually, after a couple hundred years, the, since the Pope was the Bishop of Rome, various Roman families got together, and the important people there had to do the electing. So they eventually, of course, became cardinals. Cardinals, as you know, are not found in Holy Scripture. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're, they are a creation of the church. Yes. Uh, and they're not an order. They're merely people who elect the Pope. And eventually, they wanted to give it a more international flavor than just the city of Rome. So then they began to make what will be considered important bishops for various reasons in Europe in general at first, uh, cardinals that would also participate in electing the Pope. This, of course, in the 19th century became expanded to the world. But the problem was, when, when you have the conclave, how they got to Rome to do this, there were, uh, I believe, it was uh, whoever elected, it was either Pius XII or John XXIII, uh-huh. who were the first American cardinals that could actually on the ship get here in time to vote for the Pope. And so that was a difficulty, too. But the idea was that the bishop basically came from the people initially, and that was true in many, many places. You remember, I believe, that St. Ambrose had to be dragged, kicking, and screaming to be ordained a bishop. Yeah, yeah. He didn't want to be, and I think he was a layman at the time, and he had to be ordained first. Then the kings, of course, had something to do with it, Mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. But the, the papacy is something that, because he's the Bishop of Rome, is very much connected to this. And that's also why I believe now uh, every cardinal has a titular church in Rome. They, they, uh, these churches are closed, many of them now, and the only time where they're opened is when the cardinal comes there uh, to say Mass, perhaps, once. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. But it's the connection of the whole thing together with the fact that the early church chose the bishops and the Bishop of Rome was therefore chosen by certain important people in Rome and then it eventually became internationalized because the Pope's influence became quite clearly not limited merely to the city of Rome. That should fill in some holes for you there. Uh, Abby in Oklahoma, thanks for watching us this afternoon on YouTube. It's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady here on EWTN. We do have a couple of lines open at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Let's go to Lewis now in New York City listening on Sirius XM, Channel 130. Hey, Lewis, what's on your mind today? Uh, yes, Father. I, uh, you know, there's a lady that wants to have her 
child baptized in the Catholic Church, but she wanted to have two godmothers. Is that is that legal? Is that right? Oh, I don't know. They were discussing all this in Rome, whether you need godparents at all. Uh, my understanding is that only one need be Catholic, and the whole thing is a custom anyway, you know, uh, which grew out of a certain things in Europe to try to guarantee that the children would, A, be cared for if the parents sure. die by sure. someone. One can think of the godfather in Italy. And B, should, uh, should ideally help the children to um, uh, grow in their faith. But even that lately has become somewhat compromised. I just witnessed a discussion among some younger priests about the fact that there's a lot of discussion about this now, about what to do about the whole idea of the godparents. Uh-huh. So I really uh, have no answer for you except to say that uh, it depends on the local custom, what the diocese is willing to accept. Uh, it doesn't. I'm not sure it has to be a man and a woman. It doesn't you know, kind of make sense to have it be a yeah, man and a woman. Yeah. But, but a lot of people don't make sense anymore, you know, and they want what they want, and that's just the way it is. Yeah. But I, my, my understanding is at the moment the requirement for the most part is that one godparent has to be Catholic okay, and has to help, you know, make promise. Because actually, remember, the godparents help confess the, the creed in the place of the baby. Yes, yes. <laughs> so that doesn't make much sense to have someone who doesn't believe in the creed profess the creed in place of the baby. But it's, it's, it's an issue right now. I do know, as I say, they're discussing what to do about it. Thank you, Lewis, for your call. I'm thinking, Father, of uh, a young man that, that my wife and I know, and he is currently actually in the seminary right now, uh, hopefully will become a priest at some point. Uh, but he approached my wife. He said, you know, I have a godmother, uh, but she lives in another country. Would you be my, my, my spiritual godmother? And of course, my wife said, sure. So maybe Maybe Lewis could, uh, you know, look at a situation like that. Yes, well, he's talking about official godparents. And, and official godparents, sure. All right. Yeah. Very good. Here's a question now from Michael uh, watching us on Facebook this afternoon. Father, what is the new earth to be used for? There's a reference there to the new earth. What are we, what are we talking about? You mean in the next lock, second coming, I right? think so, yeah. Yes, the new earth, the new heavens and the new earth. Well, first of all, Remember, the new heavens and the new earth have no sun and no moon. Mm, that's true. <laughs> so they're obviously not like our earth. Uh, the new heavens and the new earth basically refer to the way of looking at the world from God's point of view as finally consummated in Christ. Mm-hmm. And I would say that they primarily take effect in your own body when it rises from the dead. Okay. Because, as you know, you, you don't need, you can eat, Jesus ate a piece of fish, but you don't need to eat to sustain your life. And it's, heaven is not a, it's not a physical earth like this earth. Uh-huh. It's a, a whole different experience. And so it's more um, analogical, I would say, than it is literal. Also, uh, a lot of people look on the new heavens and the new earth today wrongly 
as something we create here ourselves by better social structures. Mm. And that's just crazy. Cardinal yeah. Ratzinger gave a talk in 1989 where he said one of the theological problems we have is what to do with the afterlife because many people who are Catholic teachers, and that, that was in 89, basically deny not only a transcendent God but an afterlife. Wow. So. All right. Well, thank you so much uh, for your answer there. Michael, thank you for your question via Facebook. We do have some lines open right now for EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. The phone number 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Call now. We can get you on today's show. Here's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey, if you call right now, we can probably get you on today's program, Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Now, if you do get a busy signal, we recommend that you call us back uh, right away. Interesting question here from Robert. Is prayer a solo activity, or would you encourage husband, wife, and family to sometimes pray together? What do you think, Father? Uh, prayer is not either or, it's both and. Ah, very good. Of course, remember, liturgical prayer is an action of the whole church. So it's not just a solitary act. It isn't just being Jesus, let's put it that way. Right, right. Of course, there is an aspect of prayer in which the soul encounters the alone with the alone. And that is a sort of a mystical prayer in a way. And I don't think you can reduce that to a group experience. Yeah. Um, but there's certainly uh, people are encouraged to pray together, to pray things like the rosary together. Uh-huh. And as you know, religious communities pray the uh, liturgy of the hours several times a day. Sure. Together also in common prayer is considered a very important part of the work that we do for the church. So I don't like the either or thing. Uh, Catholicism is not a religion of either or. It's not either God or man in Christ. It's not either bread or the body of Christ in the Eucharist. It's both and with certain distinctions made that are very important. Yes, indeed. And the same is true with regard to prayer. It's both something where the soul encounters God internally, but it's also something in which the soul encounters God in through the means of the church, through the community praying together, and so, in a similar way, like I say, in religious communities, you have both the experience of the common office, which we sing together, but then you also have to do mental prayer yourself mm-hmm. as a part of that, which is solitary. Robert, thanks so much uh, for your email. Let's go back to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. Here is Darcy. She is a first-time listener in Thomasville, Alabama, listening on the great Archangel Radio. Hello, Darcy. What's on your mind today? Yes, sir. Um, I was wondering, um, after reading some of my my husband's religious material, he was Catholic, uh, is there going to be... um, a typical marriage in heaven. I don't mean a physical marriage. I mean two people that have been joined as one. Um, is, is there, or is this going to be something totally different? 
Okay. Well, Christ is very clear about that uh, in, Ma- in, he's in Matthew concerning the question of the law of leveret. Um, in heaven, neither the Mary nor given in marriage. They're like angels. Now, what you remember, of course, in your relationship from earth when you were married here, you carry all that over with you uh, as far as the person who helped you to learn to lose your ego, with whom you had children, whom you shared quite a lot while you were here on earth in a very intimate way, including, of course, sexuality. But that's not true in heaven. In heaven, the only marriage, you could say, has nothing to do with what we refer to as the sacrament of marriage here on earth as such. It's the marriage of the soul with God. And that's true of each person. And God is so wonderful uh, and so all-encompassing and so infinite that whatever you did experience from marriage here on earth will be taken up into that experience. But there is no marriage in heaven, no, as far as what you're referring to, yes. Darcy, thank you so much uh, for your phone call. It is Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady here on EWTN. Kate is watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Kate says, could you please talk about devotional confessions and how they differ from regular confessions? Father? All right, devotional confession doesn't differ at all from regular confession. Okay. Except in the sense that you aren't aware of having committed a mortal sin and you want to get the grace still of a sacrament. So you go and you have to have one sin, venial sin, Uh a material sin, in order to experience this, but it, it needn't be... I mean, you know, people seem to think they have to have committed murder to come to confession. Uh, it needn't be anything any more than a trifle. And I'm often uh, amused sometimes, especially when people come and say, I just want to get the grace. Well, okay, I need one sin. Well, I don't commit sins. Really? <laughs> no. And I said, how about gossip? Well, I try not to. I, I love that. Uh, I said, but I didn't ask, this is what I asked you. I asked you if you ever gossiped. And I've actually had a couple, especially older ladies, say they never did anything evil. Hmm. And I thought, man, you must be ready for canonization right now. <laughs> I mean, gosh, I go to confession every week and i got plenty to say. So if you have some awareness of self, a devotional confession is basically one where you express your need for God, your uh-huh. need to help him, for him to help you be free from sin, but you find some minor aspect of your life where you need express your need for help from him. And that expression of need, coupled with some amount of contrition, is sufficient to receive the grace of the sacrament. Okay. But as regards the form and as regards the purpose, there is no difference. It's just the fact of either having a mortal sin where you have to confess it, Mm-hmm. or having venial sins, which are not strictly necessary, but recommended. Okay. Hey, Kate, thank you so much uh, for watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Hope that answers your question. Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady here on EWTN. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Here's an email from Emily now, Father. I would have thought that the Jewish people would have understood about Jesus after the resurrection. Why did they not see the truth, especially if they knew what the prophet Isaiah said? What do you think, Padre? (laughs) 
Well, I would have thought so, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it isn't true. Uh, look, the resurrection is a miracle. I think it's a very hard thing to believe in. And you will notice, next, next time we have another session, I want to talk about the fact of the resurrection, how difficult it was in the initial stages for people to believe in it. Uh, modern theologians want to make the resurrection a creation of the apostles' faith. It never really happened. Ugh. But this somehow helped them to make sense out of the Lord's passion. Well, that's not the way it's represented in the Acts of the Apostles. No. Remember, uh, Jesus appears to them, and they still don't believe. And it even says uh, in one of the parts of the Acts, I think, where Christ ascended into heaven, there were still some that doubted. <laughs> because it's such a hard mystery to believe in, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, it, it should be the case. That's why I started out with the necessity of the resurrection. But the fact of the resurrection is something very, very different. And, of course, one of the problems was that the Jews of the Christ time, not all of them, of course, some believed immediately, but uh, many of them wanted another answer. They didn't want this kind of Messiah. Mm. They wanted a political liberator from the Romans or something like that. And I've always found it very telling that in the trial of our Lord, the chief priests themselves and the, you know, the leadership of Israel, uh -huh. after all these revolutions they've had about Caesar being in charge of the country, they shout themselves, we have no king but Caesar. Mm which is just the thing that they've been denying for yeah. hundreds of years, yeah, you know. Yeah. Uh, and it's all because they, they just don't want uh, the kind of Messiah that Jesus is, is giving them. They mm. want some kind of spectacular wonder worker who's a political figure who is going to make all the enemies of Israel fall down and uh, not persecute them anymore sure christ's answer is very different and and of course the cross is a part of it they didn't like that at all yeah i think it prevented many of them from believing i guess so emily thank you uh, so much for your question here is mary now a first-time caller in tallahassee listening on sirius xm channel 130 mary what's on your mind today <laughs> hi um <laughs> you know we've just had lent and Lent and Holy Week is all about Jesus' suffering, Jesus' crucifixion, and the agony in the garden. And we contemplated that. So now he's risen. We've had Easter, and he's risen from the dead. And he's glory in heaven. So is he still suffering in his humanity for our sins and the world's sins? Of course. <laughs> Look, we do talk about the fact that we make Jesus suffer by our sins. And there's a an, an sense in which that's true. Because you've got to remember that, for example, when Christ was experiencing the agony in the garden, that our tradition is that because of his beatific knowledge of God in heaven, which no one else has as a human being, that he suffered for, he knew every single personal sin that had been committed or would be committed in the history of the human race. And he offered his life for that there. That's why the suffering was so intense. So, and uh, he's continually offering himself in heaven, as you know. That's why the Mass is a sacrifice. It's an unbloody one, 
whereas we already had the bloody sacrifice once and for all, but it's because of Christ continually offering himself for our sins. Now, there's a sense in which uh, Christ is experiencing that, but it's something that has to be interpreted properly as a part of his wounded sacred heart from when he was on earth. As far as what Jesus is now in heaven, he doesn't suffer. Uh, he can't suffer. Yeah. Because he's finally fulfilled. And the place our Lord has is very uh, well represented in the whole idea of the time. As we had Lent before Easter, now we have what's the Pentecost time. Uh, up until Pentecost, we have the uh, risen appearances on earth and the action of the Holy Spirit in the church after Easter. So um, the second experience is a companion one. It's called in fancy terms the mystagogical catechesis because once you've experienced what it means to be raised, you who are raised with Christ set your heart on things in higher realms. Even in RCIA, they're supposed to come back after the Easter vigil and go through the mystagogical catechesis so they understand what the life of the Spirit's all about. The sad thing is that because partially because of human nature, a lot of people who were baptized at the Easter vigil, they don't come back for this part. Because mm, yeah. <laughs> they got what they consider to be the, the summit of the whole thing. Uh -huh. And uh, it's not exactly. So keeping them in the church sometimes is difficult because they're missing a whole section of the experience which is the positive, joyful part, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know. So Lent, yes, we experience suffering in connection to Jesus' passion, but that's only a prelude, as you know, to Easter. And uh, our, we're an Easter people. Our yeah. Easter faith has to be the final thing, yes, culminating indeed. in Pente Pentecost, of course. Mary, is that helpful for you? Yes, that was helpful. Thank you. All right. You're most welcome. It is Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady here on EWTN. Still time to get your call in at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. You know, every weekend we bring you a wonderful program right after the Sunday morning Mass here on EWTN, and it's called Stories from the Heart with your host, Sandra McDevitt. I mean, you know, just... Whenever somebody says, once upon a time, uh, you just want to curl up in a big, you know, big soft chair and just go, yeah, tell me that story. Well, Sandra McDevitt is a storyteller par excellence. This week, she'll be bringing you part two of Our Lady of Mercy. So do join us at about 9.15 a.m. Eastern, right after the Sunday morning Mass here on EWTN Radio. All right, right now, let's go to uh, Erica in Texas. Erica, what's on your mind today? Hi, I have a question about the timeline of when the world was created. Where did dinosaurs fall into the timeline? And oh, gosh. Did Adam and Liv live when they were around, or how did it all happen? Uh, uh, well, I really don't know. <laughs> that isn't what the Genesis is about. Uh, as you know, you have the six days of creation before the creation of man, and certainly the dinosaurs could have been a part of the six days of creation. So uh, then you culminate the whole thing 
in the appearance of the human being, and that's the seventh day. But as regards the historical time zone of it all, that's all something science has to discuss. Okay. It's, it's not a matter of faith one way or the other. All right, Erica, thank you so much for your call. Vicki is watching us on YouTube this afternoon. She says, what does the Catholic Church consider a valid or recognized baptism in other religions? The Catholic Church considers a valid or recognized baptism, one in which there is the pouring of water which touches the skin Mm -hmm. of the person baptized together with the formula, and it must be this formula, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You may recall that anyone, even a pagan, a Muslim, a, a an atheist could baptize someone uh-huh. as long as they agree to what think what they're doing is what the church intends to do. They don't have to believe in it themselves okay? because baptism is such a necessary sacrament. All right, very good. And uh, thank you so much for your call or your question there, Vicki, via YouTube. Sarah is watching us or listening in Charlotte, North Carolina on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hey, Sarah, what's on your mind today? Hi, Father. Yes, um, I had a priest one time in confession when I tried to confess to laugh at me and tell me that um, nothing I did or said or could do could make Jesus happy or sad. And I just want to know what you have to say about that. Okay. Well, again, uh, I dislike talking about secondhand quotations because I'd like to know why he said that and also what he was driving at for that. If he meant, like the caller before was speaking, that we can make Jesus sad in heaven right now, uh, that's not true exactly. Uh, If he meant that Jesus knew our sins even when he was on earth, and that kind of by a relationship to eternity and to knowledge in eternity, that uh, we made suffer, Christ suffer then, uh, then that's certainly not true. Uh, certainly we make Jesus happy very much by uh, whatever good works we do. So uh, I'd, I'd like to know why he said that. But believe me, I'm not going to apologize to try to interpret what every priest says today. <laughs> because I've taught enough seminarians to know. I don't know if you've ever been a teacher but sometimes you get the impression when you have taught them for a month and you ask them questions about what you said uh-huh. and you want to say, gee, were we in the same room together for the last <laughs> month? Because what they hear is not always what you say. Sure. And so I I would say that there, there's a sense in which he says, especially about suffering, mm-hmm. would not be true. But it's only a sense. You need to make some distinctions about this. And, and um, certainly Jesus always rejoices. He even says this in the gospel. There'll be more joy in heaven over the repentant sinner, you know, yeah. than over the righteous people. He actually says this. That's and true. the good shepherd, remember, calls in everybody, rejoice with me. And the prodigal son, rejoice with me because my son that was lost has been found. So regarding Christ's joy, I would say you can make him joyful now regarding the sins he can't be made to suffer in heaven but he certainly did suffer on earth and knew your sins then 
Sarah, thank you so much uh, for your call. Greg has an interesting uh, question emailed to us. He says, in Scripture, Jesus tells the apostles to, quote, go out and get a sword. But then later in the garden, Peter pulls a sword. Jesus told him, put it away. So what, exa- what exactly is Jesus instructing in this passage, Father? Uh, well, I'm not aware of the first quotation. Uh, I'm not either. I don't think Jesus ever said that. Um, I know in the Old Testament, you have the famous swords and the plowshares. Mm-hmm. But then there's also a companion text in another prophet where it says plowshares into swords. Yep. So you got both. But I'm not aware of Jesus ever telling the apostles to get swords. Okay. Um, so uh, regarding the, um, the Malthus thing, Malchus, you know, the slave. Yes. Um, Peter was trying to defend Jesus using earthly means. And Christ came to earth precisely to suffer and die. And he certainly could have defended himself if he wanted to. But he didn't want to. He came here to embrace his passion, not for his sins, because he doesn't have any, Mm -hmm. but to save us from our sins. In other words, through his loving obedience, he, by embracing a punishment for Adam's sin, namely suffering and death, reverses Adam's unloving disobedience in order to bring the Holy Spirit back into our souls. Okay. Thank you so much for your question, Greg. Here is uh, Tony in Brooklyn, Michigan, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Tony, what's on your mind today, sir? Hey, good afternoon, Father Milady. Um, how are you? Very good, thank you. Um, I'm, asked, I am, uh, I'm just curious about I was listening one time to a, uh, a Protestant minister on the show Shepherd's Chapel on television once, and he made some reference, uh, of course, everybody knocks the Catholics a lot, and I'm a lifelong Catholic myself, and teach catechism. But uh, he was talking about that the celebration of Easter was a pagan ritual that was really called Estar or something. That he was just telling us that, you know, of course, he was uh, saying that we were... Yeah, so I was just wondering what your take was at that. Okay. I think it's silly, frankly. Um, there's a, a, a sects of Protestants, especially some of the Puritans, who thought all feast days were Catholic uh, accretions from pagan rituals. Hmm. And even Christmas, you know, they refused to celebrate Christmas. They tried to outlaw it in England because uh, it had drinking and things connected to it. My understanding is, following Cardinal Ratzinger's study, mm-hmm is that the reason Easter occurs, as does the Annunciation at this time of the year, is because the Jews looked on Nisan as the moment of the creation of the world. Now, of course, we don't know what time the world was created, but that was their uh, theory of uh-huh. the whole thing. Okay. And, and so the Annunciation reflects that in the conception of Christ, and then the Easter ritual, which, of course, is part of the Passover ritual. How the Protestant America could possibly maintain that when Easter grows out of the Passover ritual, which occurs at this time of the year. And it's very clear in the scripture when the Passover occurred. Uh, it makes no sense to me. If he wanted to say it was a Christian attempt to do the Passover, that might be different. But... Uh, <laughs> Just because it occurs during some pagan festival, I mean, I'm sure you can find a pagan festival at any time of the calendar year. Sure. 
when a Christian feast occurred, though sometimes the customs that they have are somewhat connected to them. So John, of course, his his birth occurs three months after Annunciation, and it occurs just very close to the summer solstice because it's the light shines in the darkness Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the shadow of death. And then, of course, Christmas, as you know, occurs during winter, and some have connected it with the Roman Saturnalia, but it's more just, again, nine months after the Feast of the Annunciation, and it does refer to, you know, the fact that in the midst of the darkest days of the year, the light bursts in. But there's mm-hmm. nothing, there's nothing sinister about that. Okay. I mean, uh, yeah. Very good. Tony, thanks for your uh, call. A question here from Beth. How does the church church reconcile the teaching of in persona Christi with the belief that there is only one Lord Jesus Christ? Uh, I assume you mean at the Mass? Yes. The priest? The priest is Christ's minister. But he's a minister there in a very special way because he acts in the person of Christ in the sense that Christ acts through him by this miraculous act in which the bread and wine is changed into his body, blood, soul, and divinity. Uh, not in the sense that there's, we're other Christ in the sense that we rival our Lord. We're only other Christ in the sense that we're his ministers. And in that particular action, uh, we demonstrate that ministry. He acts through us in a very particular way. All right. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, Beth, uh, thank you so much uh, for your question. Father, we are uh, flat out of time. If you uh, have just a moment, if you could leave us with your blessing. May the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. Alleluia, alleluia. Alleluia. He is risen, right, Father? Truly he is risen. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you so much, uh, Padre. Really appreciate you. Safe travels for your next mission, which will be, you said, uh, that's going to be in South Carolina, right? Anderson, South Carolina. Beautiful. Very good. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Don't forget, we've got open line for you five days a week, and the next day, of course, is going to be Easter Friday. So that'll be open line Friday with our very own Colin Donovan. Uh, All things theological, Colin is here for you tomorrow at this same time. On behalf of our fantastic team here, I'm Tom Price along with Father Brian Milady. Thanks so much for joining us. We're looking forward to our next visit tomorrow here on EWTN. God bless. God bless.